One of the things that I think is helpful for us to recognize as we talk about the Anabaptists and radical reformers is that this is an umbrella movement that encompasses at least a dozen distinct groups that were all in operation during this time period of the Reformation. And uh, it's helpful for us to understand that nuance when we read through Verduin. It's helpful for us to understand that nuance even as we think about the magisterial reformers' response to the Anabaptists. Because in many cases, the Anabaptists kind of all got lumped together and treated as one indiscriminate group. And uh, I think if we break it down into its component parts and recognize that there was something of a spectrum that's represented by the Anabaptist movement, we can, on the one hand, understand why the magisterial reformers were, at times, frustrated and concerned with the Anabaptist movement. And at the same time, we can sympathize with Verduin when he is frustrated and concerned at the reformers for the way in which they treated some of these Anabaptist groups. In some ways, I almost see the term charismatic in our own day as something of a parallel to the way that the term Anabaptist was used during the Reformation period. Um, not that the Anabaptists were charismatics, though there were some groups that were almost like modern charismatic groups among the Anabaptists. But what I mean by that is that in the same way that the term charismatic refers to actually thousands of distinct doctrinal groups, if we think about the three main waves of Pentecostal, charismatic renewal, and third wave, within that, according to the International Dictionary of Pentecostal and Charismatic Groups, there's over 20,000 distinct movements that would all fit under the umbrella of the term charismatic. And when we talk about charismatics, we are broad brushing that entire group with that one term. Um, if we can kind of take that as a parallel to the way that the term Anabaptist sometimes got used even by the magisterial reformers, the term Anabaptist was an umbrella term it actually was not a term that the Anabaptists themselves used. Perhaps eventually they began to adopt it. It was a derogatory term that was used against them, a term that meant rebaptizers. Oh, you are the people who rebaptize people. And that derogatory term was then used as a way to uh, really denounce Anabaptist doctrine. Uh, radical reformers uh, is another term that has been used by historians to refer to these groups. Radical in the sense that in many cases they were more extreme, but radical also in the sense that uh, they had foundational, central, fundamentalist issues or fundamental issues, not fundamentalist in the 20th century use of that term, but fundamental issues that they were concerned about, and in particular, the issue of baptism was one that they were very concerned about and that they were willing to die for. So, so the term radical reformers uh, often is used to refer to these groups that were outside of the mainstream of the magisterial reformers of Luther and Zwingli and, of course, Calvin and then the English reformers like Cranmer and others. 
Okay, so that's kind of the, the broad overview of what we're talking about here. And I think it's going to be helpful for you to see this spectrum again because it's going to give you some nuance in understanding how it is that we ought to think about the Anabaptists. Now, when we use that broader term, radical reformer, we can actually include people like Michael Servetus, who we will talk about when we get to John Calvin. Servetus was not an Anabaptist per se. He was an anti-Trinitarian rationalist, essentially a 16th century version of an Arian or a Jehovah's Witness in terms of his denial of the Trinity. So I suppose it's appropriate that we are having the Trinity being discussed in chapel, because it'll give us a context for um, understanding even Michael Servetus and the serious nature of his errors. Under this banner of radical reformers, we would also include spiritual mystics, like Caspar uh, Schwenkfeld, who we'll talk a little bit more later. His name is one of my favorite in the entire course, because Schwenkfeld is just so fun to say. And there still is a group in Pennsylvania of Schwenkfelders uh, who hold to a certain um, aspect of his teaching. But in some ways, some of these groups like the Schwenkfelders and others uh, really did put a big emphasis on the Holy Spirit and, um, and extra biblical revelation and some things that we see in the modern charismatic movement. So there are some parallels with some of these groups. In fact, Luther as only Luther can put things, uh, Luther referred to some of these radical reform groups as those who had swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all uh, because they were so, um, so mystically or so in tune with uh, pursuing mystical encounters that they believed to have originated from the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to talk about the charismatic movement, by the way, when we get to the 20th century, so we'll kind of leave our discussion about all of those things until then. I'm just making some connection points for you. Then there were political revolutionaries, and uh, these men here, these political revolutionaries, were really the ones who ruined it for everyone else because they presented the most direct threat to the social, social and religious status quo of Western Europe at that time, and a lot of the reaction that was aimed at all of the Anabaptists was aimed at them as a result of those who were really political revolutionaries because they were viewed as a threat to society. So this would include the Zwickau prophets, uh, Nicholas Stork and Marcus Stubner, we'll talk about them a little bit later, uh, Jan Mathis, Jean von Leiden, Thomas Munzer, and then the Munster Rebellion, which Thomas Munzer uh, was not at the Munster Rebellion, so don't get confused, even though his last name looks a lot like the city where the rebellion took place. And, and then finally, we have uh, groups of Anabaptists who I would view much more favorably than any of the others on that list, and that would be the Swiss Brethren uh, that we talked about a little bit on Tuesday when we talked about Ulrich Zwingli, those who were convinced from the scriptures that infant baptism was not something that the New Testament mandated for church life. <clears throat> and as a result, uh, they parted ways with Zwingli and were severely persecuted for that conviction. So 
Again, I'm trying to give you a perspective here that lets you see that the term Anabaptist, which was broadly used to refer to any of these radical reform groups, it ended up um, unfairly encompassing those who really were motivated out of biblical convictions with those who genuinely were a threat to society and needed to be stopped. And so as a result of this, all Anabaptists are persecuted and convicted of heresy, convicted of treason, and either imprisoned or executed. All right, so let's just talk about a few of these. This is going to be really pretty brief in terms of a survey. Uh, but we have men like Andreas Karlstadt. Karlstadt was actually one of the fellow professors at the University of Wittenberg there where Luther taught. When Luther went to the Diet of Worms in 1521 and then on his way back was kidnapped by friendly soldiers uh, who took him under the orders of Frederick of Saxony to the castle at Wartburg while, while he was translating the New Testament into German, Karlstadt essentially assumed the position of lead reformer there in the city of Wittenberg. And Karlstadt was much more radical in his reform efforts than Luther had wanted to be. Karlstadt was more like Zwingli. Karlstadt went in and took everything out that was not specifically mandated in the New Testament. So he was more of a regulative principle kind of guy. And when Luther came back to Wittenberg, remember, he, maybe you remember, he preached a series of sermons called the Invokovit Sermons, uh, which was against the people who were making radical reforms in Wittenberg while he was gone. Well, Karlstadt was one of those individuals. He wasn't the only one, and he wasn't the most extreme of them, but Luther felt as if Karlstadt had essentially betrayed his trust while he was gone by advancing reforms there in Wittenberg that were much more extreme and much more fast-paced than Luther himself ever wanted. And so Luther opposed Karlstadt then as a radical, and even though Karlstadt denounced all of the violence of the political revolutionaries, in Luther's mind, Karlstadt was one of them. Uh, and Luther never really <laughs> got over uh, what he saw as that betrayal of trust from Karlstadt. So Karlstadt ended up leaving Wittenberg and went to the University of Basel and taught there until his death. All right, let's start to talk about some of these political revolutionaries. Now, these are radical reformers, Anabaptists, who are associated specifically with the Lutheran Reformation in Germany, not the Swiss Brethren at this point. Ulrich von Hutten, who, um, as you can see from his picture there, was a, a dashing young fellow. Um, he was one who began to see the Reformation as an opportunity to invite and uh, ignite, I suppose, a revolution. And he himself was a knight. He had studied theology at the University of Greifswald and uh, a leader then of the Imperial Knights of the Holy Roman Empire. So he led a, a revolution that involved the knights themselves. This was called the Knights' Revolt, 
and he was defeated in this revolt. But it's sort of the first wave here, the first inkling that a reformation of the church might be used by some people as a catalyst for a revolution of the social order. And Luther adamantly opposed any sort of political revolution associated with his reformation. But we have here in Ulrich von Hutten sort of a, a first effort in that regard. Hutton's Knights Revolt was unsuccessful, but it was followed shortly thereafter by the Peasants' Revolt of 1524. And you might remember in the Luther lecture that we read some of Luther's own words against the peasants, where he talked about how he didn't think there was a devil left in hell. They had all gone into the peasants, that the peasants were raving around like madmen. Well, that was through the stirring up of men like Thomas Muntzer, and also the Zwickau prophets, who we'll talk about in just a moment. Munzer was a radical reformer influenced by Luther's Reformation, who then turns against Luther when Luther doesn't support the political revolutionary concepts that Munzer thinks ought to be part of the Reformation. And so this early leader of the Peasants' Rebellion in Germany is a communist. In fact, his battle cry was that all things ought to be in common. And we saw that in Luther's reply that the, the peasants not only wanted to share all of their goods with each other, they wanted to take all of the goods from the lords and the nobles and the aristocracy and share them with everyone in society. And uh, I mentioned that even when East Germany was a country, a communist country, there was a statue in honor of Thomas Munzer uh, because some of the early communists regarded Munzer as kind of a, an early ancestor of their own ideals. Uh, he was defeated, he was tortured and killed, and uh, reportedly he recanted, but it didn't do anything for him in terms of the fate that he faced. Um, but you can see, just going back here for a moment, you can see how the Anabaptist reputation is starting to be seriously tainted by groups like von Hutten leading knights in revolt, Munzer leading peasants in revolt. So it's not really about baptism at this point. It's about the threat to society that those who hold to believers' baptism pose to the state and the church there in Western Europe at this point. Casper uh, Schwenkfeld, who we mentioned earlier, one of these early mystics, influenced by Luther and also by Munzer and Karlstadt, so we see the influence of all of these men. He did reject infant baptism and uh, was very much into mystical um, communion with uh, what he believed to be revelations, extra-biblical revelations from the Holy Spirit and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, very much a mystical, um, almost uh, I, I would see it, the, the Schwenkfelders as being something of a precursor to some of the ideas that are part of the broader charismatic world today. And uh, Luther responded to these kinds of things uh, very vehemently in another place he said anybody who thinks they have an inspiration from the holy spirit that's not from the scriptures 
that, in, that revelation actually comes to them from the devil. So Luther was not unclear about what it was that he thought about this kind of stuff. And for that matter, though, Luther's points were often harshly and perhaps overstated. I don't think we would disagree with Luther's basic assessment of many of these groups. Political revolutionaries, uh, spiritual mystics. I mean, this is not New Testament Christianity. All right, the Zwickau prophets. Here we have two others who had joined with Karlstadt in making radical reforms in the city of Wittenberg while Luther was gone. It's not that they were allies of Karlstadt, it's just that they were there during that time period. Nicholas Stork, Marcus Stubner, sounds like a German law firm, law offices of Stork and Stubner. Uh, but uh, these guys, again, along with Thomas Muntzer, attempted to bring spiritual change through political revolution. Uh, they want to actually set up a theocracy, and this is going to begin to become kind of a popular concept among some of these radical groups. They claim to be acting under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. They claim that this is the end of the world, and that uh, the Lord is going to return at any moment, but they also reject infant baptism, so they're associated with the Anabaptists. And they were removed, along with Karlstadt, by Luther when he preached those invocavit sermons in, in uh, Wittenberg in 1522. All right, so I'm just going quickly here to give you kind of a snapshot of, I mean, when we're talking about Anabaptists, why is it that the magisterial reformers responded so negatively to the Anabaptists? Was it really that they were that negative against believers' baptism? No, that was not the root of the issue. The root of the issue was that some of these radical groups who espoused believers' baptism also espoused either this kind of mystical communion with the Holy Spirit, extra-biblical revelation stuff, or they espoused political violence and so believers' baptism came to be a symbol of people who were either doctrinally in error on other points or represented a political threat to the status quo. Yep, Cameron. Munster, um, he was the communist, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, is he the guy who gets accused of the story of where they believed in sharing everything and so they even shared their lives? No, 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 no. That's the Munster Rebellion, which is not Thomas Munster. So we have Thomas Munster with the Peasants' Rebellion, and ten years later we have in the city of Munster, Germany, a rebellion with Jan Mathis and Jan von Leiden, who we're going to meet in just a moment. Munster is one with a Z, with a Z. Yes, one is with a Z. So it was um, Right, Thomas Munzer, and he died in 1525, right after, or maybe 1524, right in there, when the Peasants' Revo uh, Rebellion was going on, 1524, 1525. The rebellion at the city of Munster, Germany, and I realize it is confusing, but the rebellion at the city of Munster, Germany, took place 10 years later under Jan von Leiden and uh, Jan Mathis, and... Uh, Yes, and uh, we'll look at that in just a moment. All right, Melchior Hoffman. 
Also influenced by Luther, and here we start to have again this idea of kind of a realized eschatology in the Reformation that uh, Christ is going to return, and he is going to return in 1533, and he is going to establish the New Jerusalem in Strasbourg. Um, just a FYI, if, if you're going to claim that something is going to be the New Jerusalem, Make it Jerusalem, okay? Not Strasbourg or Munster or, um, or Waco, Texas or anywhere else. Make it Jerusalem. But in any case, uh, we have uh, Melchior Hoffman here who is influenced by Luther in terms of Reformation, but he's also influenced by these other radicals. And um, these radical tendencies lead him to begin to assert some very, very unhelpful doctrines like this prediction that the New Jerusalem is going to be in Strasbourg. So he's imprisoned and he dies in 1543. That then leads us up to Jan Mathis, who we were talking about just a moment ago, who was a disciple of Melchior Hoffman. So you can see the influence, the lines of influence here. Instead of identifying Strasbourg as the New Jerusalem, he identified Münster, Germany as the New Jerusalem. And he and uh, a political leader who we'll see here in a moment, Jan von Leiden, they actually took control of the city of Münster, Germany. And in the process, um, it's a little unsure, it's a little unclear, I should say it that way. It's a little unclear, and historians are a little unsure exactly how bad things really were in the city of Münster, Germany, uh, because the reports that we have of what happened came from the enemies of those who were there, and sometimes the enemies don't necessarily report things in the most truthful or sympathetic way to those whom they just defeated and killed. But uh, Cameron is right that uh, there were reports of polygamy and adultery and other very, very immoral things going on there in the city, perhaps not unlike the Camp Davidians there in Waco, Texas, that we perhaps you remember from the news several years ago. And he died in a battle there in the city of Munster in 1534. So his political... Um, co-worker was John von Leiden, and uh, he was, von Leiden was the disciple of Jan Mathis, so Mathis was kind of the religious leader, and von Leiden was the um, political leader. He called himself the son of David, and uh, set up a theocracy there in Munster, Germany, which they claimed was the New Jerusalem, so he called himself a descendant of David. It was reportedly a communistic and polygamous theocracy, and uh, things were so bad at this point, this is in 1534, 1535, things are so bad at this point that within Germany, an army is raised of both Protestants and Catholics. I mean, at this point, the Protestants and the Catholics are not really working together. But here we have an army of Protestants and Catholics that join forces in order to put down and stamp out what they view as the evil of Münster, Germany. And... Uh, I, to I told you, this, is, this picture on the side here are some of the cages that 
John von Leiden and some of his other um, leaders there in Münster, Germany, where they were imprisoned. Uh, you might remember we talked a little bit about John Huss. We talked about how he, for a time, was put in a cage on the side of a castle there in Constance. This gives you an idea of what that would have been like. Now, obviously, John Huss is someone we admire and want to emulate in church history. John von Leiden is somebody that I think deservedly does not um, deserves our uh, our condemnation <laughs> more than our commendation. But in any case, the picture on the side here I think is helpful for just getting an idea of the kind of torture that heretics were um, were given at this time in in history. All right, so this is the Munster Rebellion's 10 years after the Peasants' War. So the Peasants' War under Thomas Munster was 1524-25. Now we're 10 years later, 1534-35, when we have the Munster Rebellion, an attempt to set up a theocratic kingdom there in Munster, Germany. John von Leiden was made the king, and his army was defeated in June of 1535, and he was tortured and killed, and then... They not only um, imprisoned people in those kinds of cages, but even after their death, sometimes left the remains there for people to be reminded of what happens to those who follow in that same path. All right, so all of this is happening in Germany as sort of an offshoot of Luther's Reformation. And Luther is saying, hey, I do not want this to be a reflection in any way on what it is that I'm trying to accomplish in reforming the church. And I think you can appreciate why he wanted very clearly to distance himself from those who were partaking in this kind of either mystical spiritualism or in this sort of political revolutionary rebellion. Now, the fact that some of these groups taught believers baptism became then the unifying factor that was perceived as being a common feature of all of these different groups. And so they were all labeled Anabaptists. But I think the reaction against them had more to do with the threat that people perceived that they presented than it did with actually their theological belief in believer's baptism. Now, that last bullet point there is kind of obvious. This tainted the Anabaptist movement. Now, out of all of this, we will have the development of something good, and that is the development of the Mennonite movement under Menno Simons. He was a Catholic priest who began to study the Bible over the issue of communion and also looked to the Bible over the issue of baptism and recognized that there was nothing in the New Testament that commanded infant baptism. And uh, this is what the Lord used in his life to lead him to break with the Roman Catholic Church. His brother Peter, uh, it's not really an accurate bullet point there. His brother Peter was killed in 1535. I think martyred is not the right word. I put this PowerPoint together, so I only have myself to blame. But Peter was one of the radical Anabaptists who was actually there in the city of Münster, Germany, and involved in that Münster rebellion. 
And he and some others went to attack um, this, I think it was kind of a fortress called the Old Cloister, and they were defeated, and he was killed in that battle. So Peter was actually killed fighting for the Anabaptists. And there's, there's a little bit of uncertainty as to whether or not the, this guy actually was Menno Simon's brother. There's some people who debate whether or not there actually was that link. Though I, I think that there was. Um, there are historical records that show that Menno Simons had a brother who was killed in that battle. And so Peter Simons is the most likely candidate for that. In any case... God is using all of this to put a very, very bad taste in Menno Simon's mouth for the way in which some of these radical Anabaptist leaders have been using their theological ideas to present a platform for political revolution. And so when Menno Simons becomes an Anabaptist, and then as he becomes really the leader of these Anabaptists, uh, groups that today we know as Mennonites, and there's some other groups that kind of come off of them, he swings the pendulum to the opposite extreme. He wants absolutely nothing to do with political revolution whatsoever. And so after Menno Simons and Dirk Phillips and others, the Mennonite movement and the Anabaptist movement becomes known as a movement that champions pacifism rather than armed Revolt. So the reason Anabaptists are pacifists largely is due to the reaction of Menno Simons and others who realized what a terrible testimony it was to the watching world of these political revolutions of earlier Anabaptists. All right, so I just want to actually show you one thing little thing here that I was reading online. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure who put this article together. It's just kind of a random thing I found through a Google search, but I appreciated some of the things that they said. And uh, so it talks a little bit here about Jan Mathis and Jan von Leiden and others who had become the leaders of the movement. And uh, because of persecution, these men were able to take the relatively peaceful Anabaptists and shape them into a militant religious group who believed they were the Old Testament nation of Israel. Melchior Hoffman had proclaimed the millennial reign of Christ would begin in Strasbourg, and these men determined to establish the New Jerusalem at Munster. So you can see how the Anabaptist movement in the 15, late 1520s, early 1530s is going in a very bad direction. And this is why it gets the reputation that it gets and why the magisterial reformers react to it in the way that they react to it. Now, um, Verduin is going to try and make it sound like maybe the Munster Rebellion wasn't all that bad. In that case, I, I, I actually disagree with his assessment of that. I think the Munster Rebellion really was bad. Maybe some of it has been overstated by the enemies of those who were there. But I really do think it was bad, and I don't think it is excusable. And so, again, while I don't think the magisterial reformers are always right, I certainly don't think Zwingli was right in the way that he treated the Swiss Brethren, this, I hope, gives you an explanation and some nuance for the broader context in which Verduin's work should be understood. So, in general, with these different movements, are people shaping 
what they believe based on just the outworkings of these movements rather than based on scripture? Because it's not like we're talking about like they saw this in scripture and therefore they were a pacifist. More or less, they kind of began to become military oriented. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, well, I certainly think when it comes to the issue of baptism that the Anabaptists had a much better understanding of the New Testament teaching on baptism than the Magisterial Reformers did. But I think a lot of the reason that the Magisterial Reformers reacted against believers' baptism to the extent that they did had more to do with what they perceived to be a socio-political threat than what they really saw as being a clear doctrinal issue. And, you know, initially they may have been open to the idea of believer's baptism, but once it became clear that Anabaptists are political revolutionaries, they were polarized and wanted nothing to do with it anymore. Um, a little bit more here about Menno Simons. Talks here about how the issue of baptism was not an issue for him until 1531 when a man in the town where he lived was executed for his belief in rebaptism. Um, Menno turned to the New Testament. He found no reference to it. He turned to his superior there at the monastery who was forced to admit that there was no scriptural source for, for infant baptism and uh, for pedo-baptism. He was aware that many other reformers practiced infant baptism, so he turned to them. Luther's Wingley Bullinger, he found that each had their own reasons, but none of them were from the Bible. And so he became convinced that the Roman Catholic Church was in error in both of the ordinances, communion and baptism. And eventually this is leading to his break. Um, here, 1535, when his brother Peter... Simons uh, was killed. And, uh, oh, I did want to read this one part up here. Here's Menno Simons. Uh, this is before he officially becomes the leader of the Mennonites, but here is him writing about the Munster Rebellion. This is really interesting. The first tract that Menno wrote was a polemic against Jean von Leyden and the Anabaptist leader in Munster and self-proclaimed king of the New Jerusalem. So, it's not just the magisterial reformers who saw this as a bad thing. Even Menno Simons, who will become an Anabaptist leader, sees this as a bad thing. He wrote this in the blasphemy of John of Leiden. Greater antichrist there cannot rise than he who poses as the David of promise. And um, so... Um, I, I see that as helpful insight into really how bad things had gotten in Munster, Germany. It's not just the magisterial reformers who denounced it. It was later Anabaptists who denounced it, wanted nothing to do with it, and tried as much as possible to distance themselves from the reputation that had been established there. Okay, and uh, then uh, just a little bit further down here, one other thing I wanted to show you from this. Um, during his career as an elder... Of the Anabaptist movement, Menno Simons made significant contributions to this branch of the Reformation. The fact that he took the leadership of a group that was in danger of losing itself under the influence of revolutionary leaders and returned it to its biblical moorings and transformed the Anabaptist into a peaceful religious body is his crowning achievement. So 
the Anabaptist movement really was heading into, um, it appeared, some sort of full-scale revolutionary mode, and Menno Simons came in, and God used him to kind of restrain the Anabaptist movement and return it to something that was much more in line with New Testament Christianity. Okay, so, but, but because of what happens in Munster, because of what had happened earlier in the Peasants' Revolt and the Knights' Revolt, I mean, the reputation of Anabaptists everywhere is forever stained in the minds of the leaders of Europe, and they will persecute Anabaptists anywhere and everywhere they find them because they believe them to be a threat to society. I mean, if this is how they act when they get control of a city, we better not let them get control of our city. Now, this is going to have ripple effects then for how the Anabaptists are treated under Zwingli in Zurich. Now, granted, the Munster Rebellion is a little bit after some of the initial wave of persecution there in Zurich, but even Zwingli, as we saw in his refutation of the tricks of the Baptists, he used those same arguments. These guys are a threat to society in order to justify his persecution of them. This is also going to have ripple effects for the entire Protestant movement. I'll go back to this. When the Munster Rebellion, <clears throat> this is important for you to understand, the Munster Rebellion took place in 1534 and 1535. As a result of that incident, the blight was so bad that it not only was staining the reputation of Anabaptists, but it was staining the reputation of all Protestants throughout Europe. As a result, persecution against Protestants began to increase in certain areas, in particular France, where the king of France did not want to allow any sort of armed revolt to take place as a result of Reformation work that was there. John Calvin writes a letter to the king of France to convince the king of France that the Protestants in France are not Anabaptists. That letter ends up turning up out into a full apologetic of what it is that Protestants believe, and we call that apologetic the Institutes of the Christian Life. So John Calvin's Institutes are really an apologetic written to the King of France to show the King of France that the Protestants in France are not like the Anabaptists of Münster, Germany. And actually, some of the things in the Institutes are clear denunciations of Anabaptists. It's like, why, Calvin, why are you so mad at the Anabaptists? Well, he's mad at the guys in Münster, Germany, who ruin it for everybody else. All right, so let's move on just a little bit. Uh, Calvin wrote, he published the first edition of his Institutes in 1536, which is the very next year after the Münster Rebellion. So that's kind of the, the ugly I suppose we're kind of doing the good, the bad, and the ugly today, but we started with the bad and the ugly, so now we get to talk a little bit about the good. There are, within this umbrella of Anabaptists, a group of men, including Menno Simons, and including, I believe, the Swiss Brethren, who are genuinely biblical in their thinking, perhaps... Um, Perhaps we could even view them in some ways as being predecessors to our own Baptist convictions. Certainly through the Mennonite influence in Prussia up into the Netherlands, there will be an Anabaptist influence on the English in the early 1600s, which will spark the modern Baptist movement. Uh, when we think in 
terms of a Baptist denomination. So there are some within this broad category who we see as being um, really kindred spirits with us in terms of their conviction about believers' baptism, and I believe the Swiss brethren fit within that category. Now, they're going to get persecuted just like everybody else gets persecuted, and you can see why that persecution was so intense. You'll remember from Tuesday that these were men who were trained and discipled by Zwingli, and they were taught by Zwingli to exalt the authority of Scripture above any other authority, and they were further taught that if it's not specifically commanded in the New Testament, we don't do it in church. That's the regulative principle. And they looked at the New Testament, and they said the New Testament nowhere commands infant baptism. In fact, there's no illustration of infant baptism anywhere in the New Testament. It is a historical argument, a logical argument, a covenantal theological argument, but it is not a biblical argument. Therefore, we don't think we should do it. If it's not in the New Testament, we don't do it. This is not in the New Testament, so we shouldn't do it. But what is commanded in the New Testament is believers' baptism. And so we are going to practice that. And if you tell us not to practice it, we're going to do it anyway because we believe that it is better to obey God than obey men. And as you remember from Tuesday, many of these men were killed. Uh, as a result... We talked a little bit about this, but as a result of the persecution, uh, they did teach a separation of church and state. They did not want the church to be controlled by the state because they wanted to have religious freedom. Uh, some of their writings on those topics do become influential in the founding of the United States of America and the separation of church and state that we enjoy here. So we think of believers' baptism as no big deal in terms of the freedom that we enjoy to do that. We think of separation of church and state as no big deal in terms of the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. And yet both of those things were extremely radical at this time. And to believe either of those things, especially to promote or practice either of those things, was to bring the death penalty on yourself at this time in church history. All right. Um, I don't know how accurate these pictures are of some of these individuals, but in any case, I was, some of you probably weren't even here, but a few years ago, maybe it was just two years ago or so, uh, Dr. Gersanti grew a beard. And I was really disappointed when he shaved it off because he looked exactly like the guy in this picture when he had his beard, which was awesome because I felt like we had George Blaurock on our faculty. Um, <clears throat> anyway, George Blaurock, one of the Swiss brethren who was one of the disciples of Zwingli, who then, through Zwingli's influence, rejected the Mass, rejected religious images. Zwingli sure, certainly would have agreed with him on those things, but Blaurock also rejected infant baptism. And when Felix Mons was drowned, which we'll talk about in a moment, 1527, uh, Blaurock was expelled from the city. He then went down to Italy where he was arrested by Roman Catholic forces and burned at the stake as a heretic in Italy. Felix Mons was drowned in 1527. He was not the first Anabaptist in Zurich to be drowned. Eberly Bolt was in 1526, but Felix Mons was the first of the leaders to have been drowned. 
And uh, you'll remember that the Zurich City Council said, if you want to baptize people, then we will baptize you permanently. He who dips shall be dipped. The idea being that um, if you're going to immerse other people in water against our strict prohibitions to do so, then we will immerse you permanently. And then Conrad Grebel, who was uh, more of a, he came from an aristocratic background, a prominent Swiss family, also disciple of Zwingli and Mons. And he was the one who performed the first adult baptism there when the 12 of them met in that home. And he baptized George Blaurock. So Blaurock was the first to be baptized. And Conrad Grebel was the one who performed that baptism. And because of that, he is considered by many to be the father of the Anabaptists. Uh, and then we have uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer. Hubmeyer was not actually one of Zwingli's initial disciples, whereas those other Swiss brethren had all been trained up under Zwingli and really were just consistently living out the very things that Zwingli had taught them. Hubmeyer was not. He came from Austria, uh, met with Zwingli, appreciated much about Zwingli, certainly appreciated uh, Zwingli's emphasis on sola scriptura, but uh, he then began to attack Zwingli because he did not believe that Zwingli was being consistent in that with the application to baptism. And the result of all this was that he fled from the city because he was about to be arrested and killed. And he was then arrested by the Austrian police and, um, and executed eventually in Vienna. So he's arrested in Zurich, tortured in Zurich, but uh, eventually released makes it to Vienna where he is arrested by Catholic forces and burned at the stake. Uh, kind of similar to Fox's Book of Martyrs, there is a book of Anabaptist martyrs called the Martyr's Mirror. So if you're interested in the history of people who gave their lives for their convictions, uh, people who died for the gospel, in this case, people who died because they were very, very certain that the New Testament taught believers baptism and they were willing to go to their deaths for that teaching. Uh, the Martyr's Mirror is, uh, is a, really a treasure trove of stories about Anabaptist martyrs. So these pictures come from the Martyr's Mirror. Um, the Reformed Response. And by reformed here, I'm talking about the magisterial reformers. So I'm talking about Luther and Zwingli and um, Calvin to a certain degree as well, and others. Again, if you take the full canvas of what we've talked about today, you can see that there is, I think, a valid explanation. I don't think it's an excuse because I don't think there really is a good excuse for some of the ways that the Anabaptists were treated, even by fellow Protestants. But if you're looking for an explanation, I think there is an explanation in the sense that some of these radical groups were really politically charged revolutionary groups that, that did deserve to be put down um, according to what we see in Romans 13. Yep, Cameron. Make it into the early version of Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know that there are any Anabaptists in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've never, I've never read through Fox's Book of Martyrs specifically looking for that. But version, it does have Anabaptists in it. But I'm just wondering if, if, um, 
it's also got some other some Catholics as well. So, but um, I'm just thinking about when Fox brought it out. I'm, I'm curious if you would have included Anabaptists. Uh, not to my knowledge, but it's it's a question that I haven't sat down and, and looked for. Um, but I would think writing around 1555 and during the Marian um, martyrs up until 1559, I would think that the stigma was still so negative towards the Anabaptists, just generally speaking. It would surprise me if Fox uh, had included Anabaptists in his original edition of his Book of Martyrs, but it's possible. Uh, the magisterial reformers opposed any kind of armed revolt. Luther was uh, extremely dogmatic on that point. Um, and uh, even Zwingli, you know, it has to be what the city council says it is. We will not do anything that the city council does not allow us to do. So they were very committed to affirming and upholding whatever the civil government in place at that time instructed them to do. And Certainly, I would agree with that principle that we obey the government and submit to the government, except in the case where the government mandates that we do something that God has told us to do, because it is better to obey God than to obey men, and that's how the Anabaptists saw it. So they did not want to violate Romans 13. They simply saw in Acts 4 a paradigm in which obedience to God trumps obedience to the state. Uh, the Reformers did oppose adult baptism. Uh, not, that's not exactly true. They opposed believers' baptism of those who had been already baptized as infants. Now, if somebody was converted through a missionary activity and had not been baptized as an infant, then they did support adult baptism in those rare cases. Uh, they opposed the separation of church and state. There was no such thing at this time in church history. They saw the Anabaptists as dangerous theologically and politically, and so they responded by, um, if we're talking about the reformers themselves, they responded by affirming and approving state-mandated violence against the Anabaptists. I think that's the right way to say it. It's not like Luther went out and started killing people himself, but he certainly affirmed the right of the government to suppress a revolution. And Zwingli affirmed the right of the Zurich City Council to drown the Anabaptists. And Calvin affirmed the right of the Geneva City Council to execute heretics in the city of Geneva. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Calvin. So, um, oh, and then finally there, in many cases, uh, I think they did distort some of their views in order to prosecute them. Uh, this then are some pictures from the uh, Martyr's Mirror. About, at this time, I would say about 85% of the executions that Anabaptists faced came at the hands of Roman Catholics, and only about 15% at the hands of fellow Protestants. And you can usually differentiate between the two because Roman Catholics generally burned the Anabaptists at the stake, and the Protestants generally drowned the Anabaptists as sort of a um, cruel, ironic twist on their take on believers' baptism. So this would have been a Catholic execution. Uh, again, a Catholic execution. In fact, you can see the... looks like a Catholic monk or cardinal of some sort standing there. Again, a Catholic execution. All of these from the martyr's mirror. 
And then here, um, a woman being drowned. Uh, and then finally, we have Michael Servetus. I only put him on the end here because I mentioned him at the beginning. I'm going to skip this slide because we're going to talk more about Michael Servetus as we talk about John Calvin. Um, I don't have a lot of sympathy for Servetus. So Servetus goes back in the bad and ugly category of some of those earlier individuals that we were talking about. All right, then uh, just a final thought here that I think is kind of an interesting question, and it's not the end of class, so we are going to keep going to talk about Calvin, but a final thought with regard to this lecture. I, I read your mind. Some of you were thinking, what, is class over already? And you're not that fortunate. Um, a final thought here. The, the Anabaptists die for issues they believe the New Testament clearly taught, such as believer's baptism and the separation of church and state, particularly believer's baptism. How important should we regard those issues in church ministry today? I think it's an interesting question, and I, I'm not going to give you an answer. It's just more something that I want you to think about, and something that we talked about even on Tuesday. It is kind of interesting that in the history of Christianity at this time in the Reformation, we have three denominations at this point. We want to call them them, three divisions we have the Lutheran division, we have the Reformed division under Zwingli, and now we have the Anabaptist division. Um, these three divisions are really separated as a result of their view of the ordinances of the Lord's table and then their ordinance of baptism. And uh, it's kind of interesting that today we have denominations that are still split over those ordinances, and yet they come together for the gospel or they're part of the gospel coalition. And I think they're right to be unified around the things of the gospel. But isn't it interesting that at a time when the gospel, the biblical gospel, is being recovered in church history, uh, the division is caused over a view of the Lord's table and baptism in particular. Um, so, um, you know, would we be willing to die for what we recognize are secondary issues but secondary issues that we believe firmly to be clearly taught in the New Testament. The Anabaptists certainly were willing to die for those secondary issues. Um, we thank the Lord that we don't face that kind of persecution, but it is an interesting thing to consider. Okay, so hopefully all of that helps put Verduin in a little bit of context. I like what Verduin is trying to do. I like most of what Verduin is saying. I think sometimes he goes too far in the way or the extremes with which he says it. But you read Verduin's book and you think, how in the world could the reformers have treated these guys this way? So I present this to you not as an excuse, but perhaps as an explanation. All right. Any questions about the Anabaptists or about Verduin's take on the Anabaptists before we switch gears and talk about John Calvin? Yeah, One just kind of arises out of the nature of uh, this discussion, which is obviously the attack on Servetus in general. Um, that's usually held up as the one major thing. And even when you get to the point where you say, well, he was a heretic, it's still, it's, it might soften the, you know, the impact a little bit, but they're still offended. Um, and I'm talking obviously about the Arminian affront to Calvinism and Reformed theology. And so the question is really, do, do they have, in general, Arminians any awareness um, in your interactions at the scholarly level with 
this question of the revolutionary style of um, revolt against the government and and the well, I mean, I don't think at the scholarly level, if you're really dealing in scholarship, that you're going to even face that kind of ad hominem attack, because the the better scholars are going, you know, even a guy like Roger Olson, who is very adamant in his defense of Arminianism, he's not going to use Servetus and that whole thing as his attack on Calvinism. He's smarter than that because, A, he knows the history of what really happened, and B, he understands the fallacy of ad hominem argumentation. But at the street level, <laughs> um, I don't know, does theology happen at the street level? I'm so out of touch in my ivory tower, I don't even know what I'm talking about. But at the street level, yeah, our Servetus gets used all the time. In fact, I'll just show you this to you guys since, we brought, since you brought up the question. And some of you have probably seen this um, cartoon um, from the Sacred Sandwich. But here you have a Calvinist and an Arminian arguing scripture texts. And so the Calvinist from Isaiah and the Arminian, the Calvinist and the Arminian. And when the Calvinist gets to Roman 9, the Arminian, you know, responds with Servetus. And uh, so, um, so we'll see that slide again a little bit later as we get into the, to the full PowerPoint. But yeah, I, you're, you're right. Um, he, Servetus' name does come up, and it's, it's actually kind of strange how history picks certain people and brings them to the forefront, and other people kind of follow the background, because Servetus was not the only person who was executed in Geneva. Servetus was certainly not the only person who was executed during this time period in Europe. Servetus himself had been arrested in uh, I believe it was in France, and had escaped by Roman Catholic authorities where he was going to be executed by them. Calvin actually tried to get a lesser form of execution, but the Geneva City Council, who is actually the one that sentenced Servetus to death, insisted on burning him at the stake because they wanted to embarrass Calvin. So it's kind of ironic that Calvin gets blamed for something that he was actually trying to mitigate against. Now, he didn't want to let Servetus go, but he didn't want to burn him at the stake either. Um, the Geneva City Council sent letters to cities throughout Europe, all asking what they should do with Servetus, and every single one of them came back saying, he has to die, he's a heretic. So this was not something that was unusual, and it's really, honestly, not Calvin's fault. Um, so as much as, you know, I want to be fair with the history, um, so, you know, I don't want to just say, well, it was, the, it was the city council, it wasn't Calvin, if Calvin was really the one behind it all along. I don't think that's the case here. Uh, Calvin believed Servetus was a heretic, very much so. He believed that heretics deserved the death penalty because everyone in Europe believed that at that time. But Calvin tried very, very hard to dissuade Servetus from his anti-Trinitarian views, and Servetus wouldn't have anything of it. And eventually, the Geneva City Council was the one that ultimately burned him at the stake. So, so we'll we'll get into all that, and I'll read some of the history behind that. But you're right. It's interesting that you have uh, this whole history of a certain, at least a certain section of the Anabaptists that were very militant and obviously engaged in immorality and all that kind of stuff, and they were claiming to be Trinitarian and, and that kind of thing. And so it seems like there's more balance if we look at the whole 
picture, obviously, and I'm sure that's why you're doing it. Yeah. Well, I think if we understand the entire context, um, you know, again, I, I don't have a problem with pointing out places where I think that Luther or Zwingli or Calvin were in error. And in particular with Zwingli, I think the way that he treated the Swiss brethren ultimately is unexcusable. So, you know, just if we back up and big picture look at the canvas of Reformation church history, I think there are some places in which their treatment, specifically Zwingli's treatment, but in which the magisterial reformers' treatment and response to the Anabaptists is not a biblical response. And I'm, I'm not afraid to say that, and I don't think the magisterial reformers themselves uh, would, I don't think they would quibble with the fact that I'm holding them to a biblical standard because they held themselves to that standard um, but they were also products of their own time. And that's another lesson that we learn, I think, as we study Reformation church history, as we look at the Catholic Inquisition, as we look at some of these other forms of persecution, is people are products of the time and culture in which they live. And so things that seem extreme to us only seem that way because we are not in that time and in that culture. And the the really convicting part of all of that is to recognize that there are things in our own time and in our own culture that are not biblical, and yet we permit, tolerate, and even embrace some of those things because we don't even think about them, because they're so much a part of our own culture. And if the Lord tarries, and 500 years from now, a group of space seminary students, I don't know, I just tried to make it futuristic, um, is studying you know, American evangelicalism in the early 21st century, somebody's going to raise their hand and go, Professor, why did the church at that time period not see this glaring inconsistency? And, and he's going to go, well, they were a product of their culture and their time. So what is the lesson for that in us? Is we need to be constantly applying the principle of sola scriptura to our own hearts and lives to make sure that what we are doing is in accord with what is in this book and not just going along with whatever everybody else is doing because that's what everybody else does in our own time period. So I think there's a good lesson for us in that. Uh, I think the pendulum actually has swung much too far to the other side. Um, I'm certainly no proponent of religious persecution, but I think we've gotten so soft and so tolerant that you can't even... You can't even criticize someone who believes something that is completely unbiblical without yourself being labeled as unloving. And um, so I think the pendulum swung too far the other way. In the Reformation, they were too quick to criticize, I think, in many cases. In our day, we're not quick enough. Yep. Could you just clarify about Zwingli? It seems like from your notes that he was actually the architect of the persecution by baptizing Hieronymus. You see, actually, you know, it says he influenced the city council, but it seems like from your notes that he actually was an architect of that method of Hieronymus. I think it was probably more nuanced than him just being the guy that dreamed up that particular mode of execution. So it was probably something that 
Perhaps he was part of influencing the city council towards choosing drowning as kind of a vivid <laughs> illustration of what it was they were being punished for. Um, but, you know, I've heard scholars on both sides, those who have said, no, it was the Zurich City Council who really is to blame, not Zwingli, and those who have said, no, it was Zwingli who is to blame, not the city council. And I think the truth is probably both, that Zwingli influenced the city council. Certainly the Anabaptists, the Swiss brethren who were persecuted, they viewed Zwingli as the one who was really, who either could have stopped it or could have influenced the city council in such a way to handle the situation differently. So with Calvin, because the city council, especially during the Servetus affair, the city council hated Calvin. <laughs> they were at odds. Um, I don't lay the blame at Calvin's feet for Servetus in the same way that I lay some of the blame at Zwingli's feet for the treatment of the Anabaptists. Now, granted, Zwingli was not the city council. He was not on the city council, so it ultimately was not his decision to make, but I think he was a primary influence in the process. 